0: You could turn with me in your Bibles the book of Romans, chapter 1. While you're turning there, have you ever come face-to-face with what's known as a good news, bad news proposition? You know, like the, the fellow goes to work in the morning and the secretary buzzes him and, and says, uh, well, I've got some good news and some bad news for you. The good news is you're going to be on television next week. Well, what's the bad news? The bad news is there's a camera crew from America's Most Wanted out here waiting to see you. Well, if you were with us last week, we discovered that the book of Romans uh, fits that description of a good news, bad news proposition to a T. The good news last week we discovered is this, that God has good news for us. In the book of Romans chapter 1 and verse 16, we are told, For I am not ashamed of the gospel of Christ. That word gospel literally means good news. Not good feelings, not a good philosophy, but the facts of what God has done for us in sending Christ and setting us free from our sins. I'm not ashamed of the gospel of Christ, for it is the power of God to salvation for everyone who believes, for the Jew first and also for the Greek For in it is the righteousness of God is revealed from faith to faith. As it is written, the just shall live by faith. Well, we saw a key insight into one of the criticisms that sometimes gets lobbed at us as believers in Christ. How can you say as a Christian that your way is the only way? Well, a couple answers to that question. Number one, it's not my way. I didn't come up with it. Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father but by me. The other thing is this. The only way that we can be saved is not by human effort, not by trying to somehow build our stairway to heaven by uh, getting our act together or doing enough good works. If we're honest with ourselves, for every good work we commit, there's an equal and opposite bad work, and that's on a good day. The fact of the matter is all we can do is put our faith and our trust in what Jesus Christ has done for us. That's the good news. Now, in order to fully understand why that good news is good news, the Apostle Paul in the book of Romans is going to reveal to us, in a sense, the bad news side of the equation, exactly where we stand as human beings. In the next few weeks, we're going to be focusing in on answering a key question that maybe you've been asked by a non-believer. Saved from what? You know, we talk about being saved, but if a non-believer said to you, what are you saved from? Uh, Boy, a lot of times we as believers would draw a blank. Well, the Bible doesn't want us to draw a blank on such a key and crucial issue. And so, in order for us to understand the magnificent glory, if you will, of God's way of saving us, there's got to be a little bit of a dark backdrop put in first. And so for the next few weeks, we're going to see exactly why we need to be saved. This morning, for the next few minutes, we're going to focus in on a section of Scripture that we could actually call the de-evolution of man. Now, I I know you've probably heard before, some people believe that every day and every way we're getting better and better but those people probably need to get out more often because human nature just doesn't bear witness to this. How did we get into the mess that we are in as human beings? Well, in the first part of Paul's amazing presentation of the gospel, he's going to reveal to us the reality of human nature and the fact that not only aren't we all we could be, but we are becoming less and less what we should be on a daily basis. We're going to see, first of all, the roots of this de-evolution, where it comes from at the beginning. Believe it or not, a lot of the mess that we are in comes down to how we choose to think about life. What does it mean to think about life properly, or even more importantly, what does our culture teach us about not thinking about life properly? We're going to see this in Romans this morning. Secondly, we are going to see the rationale of de-evolution. We're going to see exactly the difference that makes in three key areas of life, that there's no area of our life that goes untouched by the fallenness of man. And finally, we're going to see the results of de-evolution, where it leaves us when it's all said and done. The fact that we as human beings may not be as bad as we can possibly be, but we are certainly as bad off as we could possibly be is a verdict the Bible delivers With some pretty thorough descriptions, as we're going to see this morning. So let's pray and ask the Lord to speak to us about this crucial wake up call from God, almost like going to the doctor and getting the results of an MRI. The only way that we're going to find healing is, first of all, to see our desperate need for a healer. Lord, thank you that when you reveal to us exactly how far short of your glory uh, we fall how far short of being the people you created us to be. You don't reveal these things to shame us, but to change us. You you don't reveal these things to defeat us, but to complete us. But just like going to a doctor and finding out exactly what the diagnosis is before we can receive proper treatment. So your word is going to speak those things to us today. So speak to us, reveal to us maybe those areas where our own fallen nature... Not just the world outside, but our fallenness inside has led us astray. And I pray, Father, that this might be a day of awakening, a day of liberation, a day where we discover what an amazing gift you've given to us when you've caused us to be born again from spiritual death. Thank you for your goodness and your mercies, Lord. Guide us into truth, we ask in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, this morning we begin at Romans chapter 1. And verse 18, there we read this, For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who suppress the truth in unrighteousness. Now notice right off the get-go, we are presented a very challenging word from Scripture, the wrath of God. Boy, when we think about the wrath of God, maybe images conjure in your mind of that That mean old guy with a long white beard and a sneer on his face with a lightning bolt on it, looking for anybody that's having a good time on earth, and by golly, he's going to fry them and fry them good. A lot of people look at God in that way. They say, well, I don't believe in a wrathful God. I believe in a loving God. Well, I'm all for believing in a loving God, but the Bible defines love in an interesting way. In 1 Corinthians 13, verses 4 through 8, among the 16 characteristics of love we find in this passage is a very intriguing statement. Love does not rejoice in iniquity, but rejoices in the truth. Now, let that sink into your heart for just a second. When God sees what we have done, to his creation. Remember way back in Genesis chapter 1, when God finished creating all that he had in mind to create, he looked upon it and he pronounced it very good. The Hebrew there is emphatic. There was no fault, there was no flaw, there was no death, there was no disease, there was no despair in the world. But mankind said, "Hold on a second, we're going to do something about that." With the fall of man, with our turning our backs on God, God's previously very good creation and we as human beings, which God has created, we're all affected by that. And guess what? It mattered to God. It mattered to him. God had an emotional reaction to our fall. He was angry about that. Now, when we think about people who are angry, we think about people flying off the handle and people doing or saying things that they have to take back and regret doing or saying later on. Well, God's wrath doesn't work that way. In fact, the interesting thing about this is that the fact that God would care enough to look at this world and what we've done to it and actually have a reaction to this should be an amazing, encouraging thing to us. Because understand something, the opposite of hate, or the opposite of love isn't hate. Did you know that? The opposite of love is indifference. And if God just went, okay, well, you guys made your bed, go sleep in it, I'll see you later. I've got uh, more wonderful things in the universe to pay attention to than just your fallenness. Well, again, that would mean that God wasn't loving. So once again, when we talk about wrath, the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of man. Notice God gets upset. God cares enough to get upset when he sees two things going on in our lives. Notice he gets upset at all ungodliness. Ungodliness refers to our character as human beings, the the, the way we are on the inside, if you will. When God looks at our lives, and instead of seeing us as He intended us to be, made in the image and likeness of Him, Instead, that image being marred, you know, again, it's distorted. It, it's, it's not what God intended it to be. When God looks at that and He sees unChrist-like character in our lives, it matters to Him. It hurts Him. He has this emotional reaction. Notice as well it says, all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men. That isn't just our character. That's how our character flows out in our conduct. You know, every once in a while... Uh, I I run into people that are just not aware of how God looks upon us as human beings. You know, they they will say things like, well, you know, I I think I'm, I'm a pretty good person. I'm sure God is pleased with me. Well, what do you mean you're a good person? Well, oftentimes they'll say things to me like, well, I'm a good person because I keep the Ten Commandments. You know, whenever I hear that, I have a response. Can you name the Ten Commandments? That usually separates the men from the boys right there. But, you know, sometimes we'll say, well, you know, it's the spirit of the thing. Oh, you don't want to go there. In the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus made it plain that not only are we to keep God's commandments on the outside, but God's even more important with us keeping the commandments on the inside. So much so that if you and I are angry at our own brother in our own home enough to call him an empty head. Uh, we've already committed murder in our hearts, according to Jesus. So that's of no help at all. You know, once again, God isn't just interested in what we do. He's interested in the why behind uh, why, what, we, what we do as well. And, and so we see that the wrath of God is revealed in these ways, not just in our attitudes, but also in our action. Now, notice where all this uh, flows out from. The wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who suppress the truth in unrighteousness. Now, I call your attention to that term, suppress the truth in unrighteousness. The idea of suppressing the truth in unrighteousness is a very vivid, active word in the original language. It isn't just that we've somehow missed God's truth or or somehow, you know, kind of passively we haven't quite received God's truth. The idea is that we as human beings have taken God's truth, shoved it in a steamer trunk, shut the door in the steamer trunk, locked the steamer trunk, and put a big weight on top of it. We simply don't want God's truth to get out and to affect our lives. You know, in the book of Matthew, chapter 23, Jesus described a vivid picture of this process Uh, Speaking to the religious rulers of Jesus' day, he said, But woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, for you shut up the kingdom of heaven against men, for you neither go in yourselves, nor do you allow those who are entering to go in. Notice that term, you shut up the kingdom of God. You don't want anybody to go in. You don't want to go in yourself, and you're going to make sure nobody else goes in as well. Notice, again, the the reason behind this, the reason that God is upset about all of this, is not because we've missed His truth by accident, but we've missed His truth quite purposefully within our lives. Verse 19 says, "...because that which may be known of God is manifest in them, for God has shown it to them. For since the creation of the world, His invisible attributes are clearly seen, being understood by the things that are made, even as eternal power and Godhead, so that they're without excuse. Now notice something here. Uh, God is concerned, God is wrathful about us suppressing the truth and unrighteousness because the truth is evident to us. It's right there, it's right in front of us in two very interesting ways. First, internally. You know, sometimes uh, we will hear skeptics and non-believers say that, you know, they would believe in God, uh, but, you know, where's the evidence for his existence? Bertrand Russell, the famous atheist, was once asked what he would do if he died, found himself standing before God, and uh, was looking at judgment. And he said, I would say to him, sir, why didn't you not make your existence more evident to us? As if the problem was on God's side of things rather than man's. Now notice, from God's point of view, his evidence, the evidence of his existence is unavoidable in two interesting ways. First of all, we are told that God's, uh, what may be known as God, is manifest. Now look at this very carefully, in them. Uh, in, in other words, there is something about our internal nature as human beings that argues loudly That God in fact exists. In the book of Ecclesiastes, chapter three and verse ten, King Solomon put his finger on it when he said, You've put eternity in their hearts. In other words, each and every one of us has within ourselves an absolute, insatiable need for things that only God can only provide for our lives. I mean, stop and consider for for a second our hunger and thirst for a life that actually matters, for a life of purpose and meaning. Have you ever run into people who continually tell you, oh, I'm so bored, I'm so bored with life? Did you know that boredom is the emotional reaction to a life without purpose and without meaning? And sooner or later, you can literally die of boredom. You can find yourself in a place where a lack of purpose and meaning in your life can literally take your life away. You know, Chuck Colson in his book, Who Speaks for God, tells the story of a concentration camp in Eastern Europe during World War II. The inmates there in the concentration camp worked in a factory that took uh, literally uh, animal uh, sludge and converted it into a fuel additive that was used to fuel the Nazi war machine. Well, one day the Allies flew over and they bombed the factory. And so the inmates in the concentration camp came out the next day and they saw this big pile of rubble where they used to work. The commandant gave them an order. They were to take the rubble, they were to take the debris, the the remains of this concentration camp, and move it from one side of the camp over to the other. And so they did. They thought, well, I guess they're just repositioning the the, the, uh, factory. Well, after they got done with that, the commandant came out and told them that they were to move the remains of the factory back to where it started. And they thought, oh, these idiots can't make up their mind, these stupid swine. And so they moved it on back. Then they had to move it back again and again and again. And before too long, people started freaking out. People literally started running into the electrified fences and the guards would start to have to beat them down because they would be screaming. Why? Because the idea of working, even for your hated captors, as long as it had a purpose, gave people enough to go on. But senseless work, purposeless work, sooner or later, breaks the mind. Evolution doesn't explain this. Evolution would say, well, we've got a need to work. Maybe it's part of survival of the fittest. But we have to know why we're working as well. And once again, God has placed within us a purposefulness that is a reflection of being made in His image and likeness because our God's a purposeful creator. How about this one? Unconditional love and acceptance. Isn't it funny that we spend most of our lives running around looking for something we've never experienced within this life? Someone who loves us, not on the basis of anything we can bring to the relationship, but just because they love us. Well, we tend to love people who love us back. We tend to love when we get something out of the deal, right? You know, I I saw a commercial not long ago for cat food, and they had this lady on there and said, oh, I love my little kitty because my little kitty gives me unconditional love. Well, I've got two cats, and I know something about cats. Cats will love me as long as I give them their little whiskey treats every morning, but if I don't keep feeding them, the relationship's going to change in a big time hurry. If you're looking for unconditional love, may I suggest not even a dog is going to love you unconditionally. And yet we have this hunger and thirst within our lives. We go looking for love, if you will, in all the wrong places. We look for love and we look for the the need to fill this void, this emptiness we have in our heart, this insatiable thirst for unconditional love and acceptance. We look for it with other people and we can't find it. Why? Well, the famous French physicist and philosopher Blaise Pascal hit the nail on the head when he said that God has placed within us a God-shaped vacuum that only He can fill. Again, when we go looking for love in all the wrong places, we try to find purpose and meaning through accumulating wealth or another achievement, we all find ourselves curiously empty. Why? Because God is beckoning us to Himself. God's saying, I've put these things in your heart to lead you to the place where you, you will find them, but you will only find them in me. St. Augustine once said, You have created us for Yourself, O God, and the heart of man is restless until it finds its rest in Thee. And so God has made what is known of Him manifest in them, in our internal nature. And notice it says, For God has shown it to them. For since the creation of the world, His invisible attributes are clearly seen, being understood by the things that are made, even His eternal power and Godhead, so they are without excuse now notice if you want to know that there's really a god out there the first place you need to look is inside at our nature as human beings but you can also look outside and see the nature and existence of god it's absolutely unavoidable when we look around us you know it's interesting when we look at reality we've got two choices we can look at reality and say all we see is a happy accident. All we see around us is just the result of the Big Bang. You know, it, it's funny. You know, I, I read all these scientists uh, reading, uh, putting out papers uh, trying to explain how the Big Bang happened or, or proving that there had to have been a, a, an explosion of reality at the beginning of the creation. And they go on and on about all of this. But none of them are able to explain the incredible complexity and order that we see in the universe. You see, explosions in print shops don't make encyclopedias. If you believe that, you have more faith than I do. And yet, that's exactly what we are told is the nature of creation. And God says, no, I've stacked the deck. I've put things together in such a way that you're without excuse. Look around you at the creation, the cosmos around you. Psalm 19 and verse 1 says, the heavens are declaring the glory of God and the firmament shows forth his handiwork. Well, I'll tell you what, all you need is a $50 Costco 100-power telescope. Go out to a dark site and look at Jupiter. When you look through the lens of this telescope, you see this amazing planet, this mighty creation of God with all of its little moons. You can actually, if you watch it long enough, see these moons move around the planet of Jupiter. It's amazing. You know where to look on an autumn night. You can go along the edge of the Milky Way and see even beyond the Milky Way the glories of the Andromeda galaxy, a spiral galaxy just like our own, some 224 million light years away. Fill fill the, the, the field of your scope. And you look at this and you go, God, you are amazing. Johannes Kepler, the famous astronomer and discover, discoverer of the planet Uranus, uh, once said, oh God, I'm thinking your thoughts after you. You see, properly understood, the creation reflects the creator. And it really kind of comes down to how you look at it. There was a story told in the London Observer that illustrates this point, I think, beautifully. It was a story about some mouse, a family of mice that lived in a piano, and the mice, every once in a while, would hear this beautiful music, and they always assumed that the music came from a great piano player. Well, one day, one of the mice became especially brave and climbed up farther into the piano than anybody had any mouse had ever gone before and discovered something. The music wasn't coming from a great piano player. It was coming from these wires that would vibrate while the music was playing. Then another mouse got even more brave and came and saw that it wasn't the wires that were creating the music. It was these hammers that were hitting the wires in just the right way that was creating the music. And so the mice came back and congratulated themselves. No longer did they need to believe in a great piano player someplace. They understood it was all about wires And hammers but the great piano player continued to play the music so once again god says there's no excuse you look within you you look around you god has stacked the deck so notice this constant rejection of god this this purposeful rejection of him this holding down his truth in unrighteousness boy let me tell you something what you believe about life What you think about life really does matter. It's really going to come out in the wash. You know, there's not a single one of us who isn't a philosopher. Did you know that? Because we all have a worldview. We all have lenses through which we look at life. And if those lenses are out of whack, well, Katie, bar the door, some pretty difficult things are coming. Notice we are told that, uh, again, for since the creation of the world, His invisible attributes are clearly seen, being understood by the things that are made, even His eternal power in Godhead, so that we're, they're without excuse. Why are people without excuse? Because although they knew God, they did not glorify Him as God, nor were thankful, but, uh, but became futile in their thoughts, and their foolish hearts were darkened. Professing to be wise, they became fools. And change the glory of the incorruptible God into an image made like corruptible man and birds and four-footed animals and creepy, thing, creeping things. Now, notice, here we see this de-evolution of man going on. We reject the knowledge of God, we decide to explain life without God, and boy, the consequences start rolling in. Although we don't glorify Him, nor we're thankful, we become futile in our thoughts. The word futile there in the original language carries the idea of empty, in our thoughts. You, you, you become a, a person that really doesn't have any answers for life. You know, the, the famous philosopher uh, and, uh, and writer uh, Bertrand Russell, a mathematician, uh, said this, you want to find out how futile life without God really is? Go to the source. This fellow rejected God. He won a Nobel Prize for literature for his book, Why I'm Not a Christian. This is what he said about his worldview. He said, Man is the product of causes that had no prevision of the end they were achieving. His origin, his growth, his hopes and his fears, his loves and his beliefs are but the outcome of accidental collisions of atoms. No fire, no heroism, no intensity of thought and feeling can preserve individual life beyond the grave. All the labors of the ages, all the devotion, all the inspiration, all the noonday brightness of human genius. Are destined to extinction in the vast death of the solar system, and the whole temple of man's achievement must inevitably be buried beneath the debris of a universe in ruins. All things, if not quite beyond dispute, are so nearly certain that no philosophy which rejects them can hope to stand. Now, catch this only within the scaffolding of these truths, only on the firm foundation of unyielding despair can the soul's habitation henceforth be safely built what Bertrand Russell was saying is this, you're all just an accident, no matter what we do we're all going to end up nowhere, you might as well give in to despair, Yank, that is the definition of a futile life <laughs> Russell says, you might as well embrace it. Leo Biscaglia, uh, the famous Dr. Love, the, the love doctor, the psychologist, bestseller, best-selling author and writer, uh, summed up his philosophy in life when he said this, life means nothing, so enjoy the trip. Well, the problem is people just can't live that way. Why do people embrace despair? Why do they become futile in their thoughts? Because instead of stepping into the light, they prefer darkness. They even prefer the despair of darkness, the possibility that the hunger and thirst we have for unconditional love and acceptance, the insatiable desire we have to know that our lives matter, could actually find some kind of resolution. So, you know, interesting, verse 22 tells me something that, uh, that always used to baffle me. It says, professing to be wise, they became fools. Now notice, in this world, if you reject the idea of God, if you reject the idea that God has spoken to us, you reject the idea that Jesus Christ is God, that He lived, died, and rose from the dead, boy, let me tell you something. You'll get a lot of pats on the back in academia. Uh, I mean, the uh, think tanks, the intelligentsia, the elites, will all say, well, you know, this is just a given. You know, we just reject the whole idea of God. In in fact, it's almost a badge of honor to be considered an agnostic in these days. You ever had a conversation with someone like that? Well, I'm an agnostic, you see. We, you know, we, we tend to look at that and we say, oh, wow, you know, that's, that's very deep and very intellectual, until we take a step back and ask ourselves this question. What does the word agnostic mean? Did you know it means literally one without knowledge? I guess we could transliterate that by saying, I'm an ignoramus, I have no idea whether God exists or not. Now, it's interesting to me that in the realm of spiritual things, that's considered to be the height of intellect. But any other discipline, if you ran into somebody who just said, well, I just really don't know what the facts are, I'm just not really sure you can even know, really, uh, which ends up, you know, we don't tend to commend those sort of things. You know, a, a a little while back, You know, I I had a kidney stone, and and my kidney stone wasn't getting better, and so my uh, specialist was saying, we're going to go ahead and operate on you, right? And and if you're going to have a kidney stone removed through surgery, let me tell you, it goes through some pretty delicate places. I would want to know beyond a shadow of a doubt that this guy who was going to work on me definitely knew what he was talking about, definitely knew what he was doing. Could you imagine going in there and sitting down with somebody the night before surgery, and saying, Well, we're going to do this and this and this. And you go, Well, is that what's going to take to really heal me? Well, I don't know. <laughs> you know, uh, far be it for me to say I'm sure about something like this. It might, it might not. Hey, far be it for me to put my trip on you, man. You know, you got a kidney stone. Hey, we can put a cast on your arm. We can take out your appendix. We can uh, give you some aspirin for a headache. But you, you just tell me because we really just don't know. See, isn't it funny how when your life is on the line, your physical well-being is on the line, we ask for, nay, dare I say, we demand precision. We demand that somebody knows what they're talking about. But when it comes to spiritual issues, we just go, oh, I guess it doesn't really matter. As if you couldn't understand what the answers were, or really it doesn't matter if you do. You know, (laughs) Let me tell you something. The words of an old German proverb, eternity's a long bargain. We better know what we're talking about when we're talking about facing our eternal destiny. Now, as it says, professing to be wise, they became fools. Now, you say, fools, Scott, really? Isn't that a little harsh, calling these people that reject God fools? Well, not really. First of all, the Bible says in Psalm 14 and verse 1, the fool has said in his heart, there is no God. And again, I come by this honestly. There was a time in my life where I considered myself to be an atheist. But stop and think for just a second. You, 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 you grant somebody, okay, you're an atheist. You believe there's no God. How did the universe come into existence? Well, it's the Big Bang. Well, what created the Big Bang? Well, it just happened. It just happened. You know what they're telling you there? They're telling you that the universe is one big uncaused effect. Did, did you know that? Now, I don't know about you, but that sounds pretty silly to me. You know, I can imagine things causing things, but I can't imagine nothing causing things. You know, when, when I was uh, a little kid, uh, we were living in West Los Angeles, and, and, you know, my brother and I, you know, my older brother was like five and I was four, and one of our favorite things, what was this? My, my folks had this chest of drawers. Uh, that was, it just seemed huge to me. You know, we had to crawl up on top of it. And, and, and the great thing about this chest of drawers was about three feet beyond was my parents' bed. And, and, and so my brother and I would climb up on this chest of drawers and we would see who could get closest to touching the ceiling and then bam, down on the bed, right? So, so, so we started doing that and, you know, the other one would be doing kind of the double time theme from no nah, na 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 nah, Batman, bam, boom, bam, nah, boom, bam, and then suddenly crash. The Sears Best bed frame gave up the ghost. You know, there's this huge crash comes in. My dad comes in and stands in the door. What did I tell you kids about jumping on the bed? I remember we looked at our dad and said, we don't know what happened, dad. We were just standing here and, and, and suddenly the bed just exploded. <laughs> well, my dad might have been born at night, but it wasn't last night, Right. He knew that Sears' best bed frames do not explode unless two hyperactive kids have been jumping on it, right? It's the law of cause and effect. What the atheist wants me to believe is the greatest effect we've ever seen in the entire universe is uncaused. Show me one example of that uh, in, in the universe, and I'll be happy to consider your claims. But things just don't happen. They just don't come into existence unless they are caused. God is the great cause. God is the one who caused the universe. You know, uh, to add to that, explosions in print shops, gang, don't make encyclopedias. But that's what evolutionism wants me to believe. Your DNA is incredibly complex. Do you realize how complex your DNA really is? And it's an information storage and retrieval system, gang. Your DNA is so complex that according to the Swiss mathematician Dr. Charles Eugene Guy, your DNA is made up of four complex proteins. The odds of just one of those four complex proteins being formed by chance. Do you know what the odds are? One in 10 to the 605th power. That's 10 with 605 zeros after it. It's a number so big we don't even have a name for it. And yet Science wants me to believe. Well, it must have happened once, I guess. <laughs> Understand something. Uh, you know, if someone came to me and said, I've got this investment for you, and if it comes through, boy, you're going to be set for life. Well, what are the odds of it coming through? Well, one in 10 to the 605th power. I would not invest a single dime in that investment. And yet there are people who are investing their eternal destinies, their entire lives, on that proposition. So professing to be wise, they became fools and changed the glory of the incorruptible God into an image made like corruptible man and birds and four-footed animals and creeping things. Here we see the rise of idolatry. Where did idolatry come from? Well, the essence of idolatry basically is this. Mark Twain once said, in the beginning, God made man in his own image and likeness. And ever since then, we've been trying to return the favor. That's what idolatry is all about. It's bringing God, first of all, down to our level so we can understand him. You ever run into somebody and say, well, I can't believe in the Christian uh, religion because the doctrine of the Trinity, it's, it's, it's just, I, I can't understand that. The famous basketball player, Kareem Abdul-Jabbar, said that he converted to Islam because the concept of God in Islam is there's one God, there's only one God, and he could understand that. He could never understand the Trinity. Well, I think that's kind of an odd reason to reject the idea of the message of the Bible. You know, I can't understand, for instance... How God can be everywhere at once. I can understand me being one place at once, but I don't understand what's called God's omnipresence. I can't understand God's omnipotence, that He can do anything that's possible to do. And yet we accept that. It would only stand a reason to me to figure that if we are talking about the true and living God, His essential nature might be something that's not irrational, but might just kind of blow our minds a little bit. And yet We try to lower God down to our level. Even more, we don't just lower God down to our level so we can understand him. We try to put him maybe a peg under us. In this sense, we want God to do our bidding. We want God to be our errand boy. We want God to be the one where we call the shots and tell him his business. And that's what idolatry is all about. You pray to Moloch, you get a lot of kids after you sacrifice your first one to him, of course. You pray to Baal, you get good crops. I mean, you know oh, how primitive and how superstitious, how pagan. Oh, be careful. That kind of mentality does land office business even in Christian circles these days. It's called the faith movement. There's people who believe that you can have faith in your faith, that your faith is a force that you can use. And if you have faith in your faith, you can apply a passage in the Scripture and get God to do for you whatever you want. (laughs) To quote the great... 20th century philosopher bob dylan do you ever wonder just what god requires you think he's just an errand boy to satisfy your wandering desires we start calling ourselves the master and god the servant uh, we've reversed the equation we're we're making god less than he is we've created an idol because we want to be in control we can't trust god so we want to be calling the shots So here we see this uh, twisted psychology, this twisted philosophy, even this twisted theology that comes when we begin to fall away from the Lord. And guess what? It doesn't stop there. What happens in your mind really does matter. In Romans chapter 12 and verse 2, we are told, Do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind, that you may approve what is that good, acceptable, and perfect will of God. What God wants to give to us is a proper understanding of who He is mentally in terms of our grasping of His truth, because if we get that wrong, well, let me tell you something, nothing more powerful, nothing more practical, nothing more dangerous is going to flow out of our lives. When we don't understand who God is. Look at verse 24. It says, therefore, God also gave them up. Boy, that is a key line. If you're a Bible underliner, you might want to underline that one. God gave them up to uncleanness in the lust of their hearts, to dishonor their bodies among themselves, to exchange the truth of God for the lie. Notice the the lie there is singular. What lie is that? Well, the first lie we were taught in the Garden of Eden. Remember what the snake uh, sold Eve on? You will not die, but you shall be as God. The idea that we are in control, that we are the God that runs our own life. We exchange the truth of God for the lie and worship and serve the creature rather than the creator who is blessed forever. This idea of God giving you up. You know how God manifests his wrath? You know, we think about God with the lightning bolt and God, you know, you know opening up the earth and swallowing people and things like this. You know how God tends to judge sin? He goes, all right, have it your way. Two great tragedies in life, not getting what you want and getting it. Sometimes God will go, look, if you reject, you reject, you reject, you say, go peddle your papers, fine, but there's going to be consequences. That's exactly what happened with Pharaoh in Egypt. And he'll say, oh, poor Pharaoh, you know, God visited him with all these plagues, and you know, we, we think, oh, you know, he, he, he just kind of set him up. Well, no, he didn't set him up. Do you realize that for the first five plagues of Egypt, after each and every plague, we are told, Pharaoh hardened his heart. After each and every one, Pharaoh hardened his heart. It was only when we got to plague number six that the scripture says God hardened Pharaoh's heart. Basically what God said to Pharaoh was this, if you're going to continually say, not thy will, but mine be done, have it your way. God gave them up. Now notice, this begins to affect our lives in a lot of very important ways. First of all, spiritually. Verse 24 says this, God gave them up to uncleanness and lust of their hearts to dishonor their bodies among themselves who exchanged the truth of God for the lie and worshiped and served the creature rather than the creator. It then begins to affect us, believe it or not, even sexually. Sexually. Look at verse 26. For this reason, God gave them up. There's that line again. You want to go your own way? You want to do your own thing? Finally, God will go, all right, have it your way. God gave them up to vile passions, for even their women exchanged the natural use for that which is against nature. Likewise, also men, leaving behind the natural use of the woman, burned in their lust for one another, men with men, committing what is shameful, receiving in themselves the penalty of their error, which was due. Now, here we find one of the great lightning rod verses in the entire Bible. And the first thing I will say to you about this particular passage, which pertains to the practice of homosexuality, is I didn't write it. This is the Bible speaking. This is God's perspective on human sexuality. Now, there's a couple of things that we need to understand about this. When I get asked this question on our radio program, A Reason for Hope, well, what does the Bible say about homosexuality? You know, the first thing that I tell people is, To answer that question, we've got to figure out what God says about sexuality in general. If you don't understand that, you're never going to be able to make heads or tails about this controversial issue. And so we go to Matthew chapter 19 and verse 4. There Jesus said, Have you not read that he who made them at the beginning made them male and female? For this cause a man shall leave his father and mother and be joined to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. Therefore, what God has joined together, let not man separate. Here we see God's point of view for the practice of our sexuality. One man, one woman committed together for life. If we take the practice of our sexuality outside of those parameters, God not only created sex, He created it to be a beautiful thing, He created it to be something to enjoy, but He also created it as a way of manifesting His glory to us in that the one flesh relationship being described here would give us an insight into the very nature of God. When, when a man and a woman come together spirit, physically, we are told they become a cod, one flesh. The two people become one in a very powerful and spiritual way. And because of that, because God has made us in His image and likeness, He's created us different as men and women. But when we come together in that beautiful complementarian kind of a sense, boy, it's a powerful picture. Of God's love for us. And it's a reflection of this world as far as the glory of God is concerned. But when we decide to take matters into our own hands and say, God, thank you for the suggestion on practicing my sexuality within your defined uh, role of marriage. By the way, this is God's definition of marriage one man, one woman committed together for life. This is how God spells it out. When I, as a heterosexual, look at this and go, mm, I'll take that under advisement. But my desires say I'm going to go beyond these boundaries. Either before marriage, getting involved sexually, that's called fornication. Or after marriage, getting involved with a partner uh, sexually that's not my spouse. Well, first of all, I'd be a dead man. Pam would kill me. But, but secondly, <laughs> if we do something like this, we've redefine marriage in a way that the Bible doesn't define it. We decided, hey, I'm going to take my heterosexual lust and go outside these boundaries. And God says, don't do it. It's going to destroy you. The the fruit's going to come in. You're not going to like it. Conversely, if, say, I struggle with homosexual lust say, I desired to practice my sexuality, I was attracted to members of the same sex, and I took the practice of sexuality outside the one man, one woman committed together for life relationship we call marriage, and get involved with someone of my own gender, I've done the very same thing. You see, we're all in the same boat as far as that's concerned. Sometimes Christians have pointed at the gay community and have said, your sin is depraved, and your sin is awful, and your sin... Is... No, we're, we're all depraved we're all out to lunch because we've all violated these kind of standards either by action or by attitude so we're all in that same boat you understand but don't miss the point here the reason that we are so messed up in our culture these days as far as the practice of our sexuality comes back to our relationship with god we basically said god i can't trust you i can't trust your instructions regarding the practice of my sexuality so i'm going to take it into my own hands god says disaster it's coming. I mean, stop and think about it for just a second. I know this is a tough analogy, uh, especially in light of the fact that we're here in September in in that time in Arizona when you never think it's ever going to cool down like ever again. You know, we're kind of getting to the edge of despair there uh, as well. But, But try to imagine being up in Colorado at a ski lodge in the winter. You know, you have this beautiful condo at the ski area and and you come back after skiing and it's cold outside and so you build a fire in the fireplace. Boy, let me tell you, you got some logs burning in that fireplace in that situation. You're warming yourself up after being out on the slopes. Boy, it's a great experience, isn't it? But if I take one of those logs out of the fireplace and I put it on the sofa, we got problems, right? There's going to be consequences for me going outside the boundary of something good And using it in a way it was never intended. That's exactly what we do with our sexuality. We use it outside the the guidelines that God has set up for us. You know, and so it's such an important thing for us to understand here. You know, our sexuality is a very powerful but very fragile part of who we are. Use with caution. If you want to find out more about this, we've written a position paper on this whole issue. Because it's so controversial here in the church, just uh, go to the website or or, uh, ask for a copy of it uh, from the office. We'll be happy to go into more detail on that. But notice, we are told, after we see this symptom of a spiritual breakdown with God being manifest sexually, uh, it applies to all of us. Look at verse 28, it says, And even as they did not like to retain God in their knowledge, this is the key, not retaining God in your knowledge, God gave them over. There's that phrase again. Third time we've seen it. You want to go your own way, eventually God's going to go, all right, have it your way. God gave them over to a debased mind to do the things which are not fitting. Being filled with all unrighteousness, sexual immorality, wickedness, covetousness, maliciousness, full of envy, murder, strife, deceit, evil-mindedness, they're whisperers, backbiters, haters of God, violent, proud, boasters, inventors of evil, things, uh, disobedient to parents, undiscerning, untrustworthy, unloving, unforgiving, unmerciful, who knowing the righteous judgment of God that those who practice such things are deserving of death, not only do the same, but also approve of those who practice them. That's the rest of us, Gay. You see, uh, when we take a look at this list of the, uh, the fallout that we have, You know, maybe you can pick and choose on all this and say, okay, full of uh, a murder. I've never murdered anybody. Yeah, but are you full of strife? Are you full of envy? Do you look at your neighbor and say, well, why them and not me? You know, are you uh, maybe not somebody who's actually, you know, destroyed somebody physically, but are you a whisperer, a backbiter, someone that just can't wait to receive a nice juicy bit of gossip and pass it along? You know, again, we're all under condemnation here. And no, notice as well, there's no excuse. Verse 32 says, Knowing the righteous judgment of God, that those who practice such things are deserving of death, not only do the same, but approve of those who practice them. You see, that's where we are in our culture today. You know, when I, I look at verse uh, 28 through 32, I, I find myself saying, well, that's your basic day on the Internet, isn't it? Uh, I mean, that's your basic uh, timeline on Facebook or Twitter. Uh, you, you get all these kind of things, and, and it's just a reflection of where we are in our hearts. You know, uh, it, it's interesting. A few years back, uh, Ted Turner, who's the founder of CNN, uh, really expressed, I think, uh, where a, an awful lot of people are in our day and age. Uh, at the uh, 1988 National Press Association meeting, he said... We are living without outmoded rules. The rules we're living with are the Ten Commandments. And I bet nobody here pays much attention to them because they are too old. When Moses went up on the mountain, there were no nuclear weapons. There was no poverty. Today, the commandments wouldn't go over. Nobody around likes to be commanded. Well, I think that pretty much expresses, in essence, the scriptures we've just read. God, go peddle your papers. I don't want you telling me what to do. Interestingly, not long after that, Ted Koppel, the famous journalist and host for many years of Nightline, gave a valedictory event at Duke University. He said this, and I think it's really an interesting observation, he said, in place of truth, we've discovered facts. For moral absolutes, we have substituted moral ambiguity. We now communicate with everyone and say absolutely nothing. We have reconstructed the Tower of Babel, and he said it's a television antenna. We can substitute the Internet for that. A thousand voices producing a daily parody of democracy in which everyone's opinion is afforded equal weight, regardless of substance or merit. And it can be argued that the opinions of real weight tend to sink with barely a trace in television or the Internet's ocean of banalities. Now listen to these words. Our society finds truth too strong a medicine to digest undiluted. In its purest form, truth is not a polite tap on the shoulder. It's a howling reproach. What Moses brought down from Mount Sinai were not the ten suggestions. They are commandments, are, not were. The sheer brilliance of the Ten Commandments is how they codify in a handful of words acceptable human behavior, not just for then or now, but for all time. The question we got to ask ourselves is this, do we believe that? Uh, An even more important question to ask yourself is this, do I not just believe that, do I live like that? Like God actually has input in my life. This is the de-evolution of man, gang. This is who we are as a species, as a race, with the sobriety of a surgeon showing you the MRI showing you that all of us have a fatal spiritual disease that left unchecked is going to create wreck and ruin within our life, the Bible shows us probably more truth about ourselves than we'd ever want to hear or ever want to see. Where does that leave us as believers? If this is the flow, if this is the direction of human nature... How do we make sure we're not going with the flow? How do we make sure we're not driving headlong down a road where the bridge is out up ahead? Three things I want to leave you with. Number one, if denying, suppressing, holding down God's truth and unrighteousness got us into this mess, it only makes sense to me that we should open that steamer trunk, take the weight off the top, and get the Bible back into our lives. Second Timothy chapter 3 And verse 16 tells us all scripture is inspired by God and is profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, that the man of God may be adequate, equipped for every good work. If you want to be adequate, equipped for every good work, if you don't want to end up drifting downstream, any dead fish can drift downstream, it takes a live fish to go against the tide. Make sure you've got an open Bible. It's been said, and accurately so. A person with a Bible that's falling apart rarely has a life that's falling apart. Secondly, don't make excuses. Make peace with God. Don't say, well, God, if you'd done this or you'd done that, I'd be more holy, I'd be more godly, I'd be more with it, I'd be more together. Don't make excuses. Make peace. 2 Corinthians chapter 5 and verse 17 says, if anyone's in Christ... He's a new creation. Old things passed away. Behold, new things have come. There's so many people that say things like, well, I'm just this way, or, or you've just got to accept me like this. I'll always have a bad temper. I'll always be touchy. I'll always be that person that just can't, can't help but, but pass along that that morsel of malicious God. I'm just that way, and, and I, you just have to accept it. You know, when people say that, I always take a deep sniff, and, and, and I can smell the sulfur because Satan's lying to you. You don't have to be that way. You can be a new creation in Christ. And finally, don't glorify man. You know, don't believe things because your favorite preacher says something. Don't believe things because your favorite philosopher says something. Don't fall into the myth of the white lab coat. Set. Well, he must know what he's talking about because, you know, he's, got a, he's a scientist. He's, with a, he's got a PhD. Hey, I want to tell you something. I've discovered something over the years. Most astrophysicists make lousy theologians. And I don't think they'd want to switch places. If I went to Harvard University to their astronomy department and said, well, I think I should teach astrophysics. Well, why is that? Well, I've got a Master of Divinity degree. They'd look at me and go, what? Get out of here. You don't know what you're talking about. It's not your training. It's not your background. But you've got William deGrasse Tyson, and you've got Stephen Hawking. You've got all these people who are trained in astrophysics, tainting to tell us what we should think about God. Stay in your lane, man. That's what I tell people, Right? <laughs> Don't glorify man, glorify God and be thankful. What should you be thankful for? Be thankful for this. And we're going to see this developed in the book of Romans. God has saved us from this mess. 1 Corinthians chapter 6 and verse 9 says, Do you not know the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? Do not be deceived, neither fornicators, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor homosexuals, nor sodomites, nor thieves, nor covetous, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor extortioners will inherit the kingdom of God. Now catch this, and such were some of you. But you were washed, you were sanctified, you were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus and by the Spirit of our God. God's got a rescue mission. He's got a healing work. He's got spiritual surgery he wants to do on all of us. But you'll never receive the healing till you know you need the cure. Let's pray and thank God for him loving us enough to tell us the truth this morning. Father, thank you that your word doesn't pull punches. You don't uh, season your word to suit the taste of any individual. You speak from an unreproachable heavenly perspective. and see us inside and out. Lord, I thank you that when you look at us in justice, in wrath, in judgment, you never forget as well to look at us through grace, through mercy, through loving kindness. And I thank you, Lord, that you have devised a way through sending your son to die for us and pay fully the price due us for our sins to rescue us from the devolution of man. Lord, we don't want to be squeezed into this world's mold. We want to be transformed. God, we desire, Lord, for you to do this beautiful work within our lives. And I thank you, Lord, for what Paul's going to tell us later on in Romans chapter 12 and verse 1. I beseech you, therefore, brethren, by the mercies of God, that you present your bodies, a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual service of worship. If what we're doing with ourselves and with our bodies and with our desires and our drives is barely discernible from anybody else in the world. May this be the day that we turn around. May this be the day we're no longer playing uh, double life games. One person in church and one person outside. May you do a work of purifying our hearts and making us whole. And Father, I pray if there are any within the sound of my voice who've never received a living relationship with you, just by putting their faith and trust in you, that's all you ask. I pray that right now in this moment, right where they are, they would simply pray, Lord, I know that this is talking about me. I know I've fallen short of who you've created me to be. I know I've blown it, and I've I've blown it willingly, and I offer no excuse. But I believe that Jesus died for me, and I believe that He rose from the dead so that I could have life. Please come into my heart. Forgive my sins. Make me a brand new person from the inside out. I receive you as my Lord and Savior today. In Jesus' name, amen.